0: Well, I hope you got an outline for tonight. If you don't, you're going to have to be here at about midnight. I want to give you a little test as we begin. First Timothy chapter 1, we talked about what the church is supposed to do. It's supposed to teach the Word, win the lost, and defend the faith. Chapter 2, he talked about prayer and public worship. First of all, men are to pray. And he talked about public worship and how men and women are to respond in public worship. Now, in light of what the church is supposed to teach and do, Paul tells Timothy how the church is supposed to select leaders. So, I want to ask you some questions, and you've got a quiz there on the front of your note sheet. How many ministers does Sherwood have? 3,000. Everybody is called to be a minister. Now, some people are called vocationally, but every member of this church is called to minister and to serve. The word minister, the word deacon, only means to serve. So if a person is serving, they are ministering. Second question: How many elders does Sure would have? <laughs> Seven. Ministerial staff of the church are ordained and called to vocational ministry, make up what Baptists have historically considered pastors to be the elders of the church. Number three, how many deacons does Sherwood have? Thirty-six, in the office. But all of us, again, are to be servants and to be deacons. True or false? In the New Testament, the pastors and elders were elected by majority vote. False. In fact, in the New Testament, the elders appointed other elders. Uh, let me just give you a couple of references. Second Peter 2, uh, Timothy chapter two and verse two, Ephesians 6:22, Philippians chapter two, uh, Colossians chapter three and 1 Thessalonians chapter three. In fact, Paul over and over says about Timothy and Titus, "I have sent them to you." Paul sent Timothy and Titus to be the pastors of the churches. Uh, There is a sense in which some of our other evangelical brethren are closer to the biblical role of calling pastors to churches than Baptists are. Baptists historically elect a pulpit committee to go out and find somebody who can preach. But the New Testament pattern was Paul sending Timothy, was a bishop or an overseer sending another bishop or an overseer to oversee a church in a particular city. Number three. Number two. Let's go to number two. A church that follows the New Testament pattern will be a democracy. False. There's not one example in the New Testament of them voting on anything. Now, it says oftentimes that it seemed good to them. So it seems that the church would get a consensus on things, but they didn't have ballots and they didn't vote. It just what seemed good, what seemed right to them to do in the selecting of deacons, it seemed good to them. Uh, in the sending out of people, it seemed good to them. And, And uh, James, in Acts chapter 15, he gave the report to the church on how the church ought to respond to reaching Gentiles, and it seemed good to the church. Uh, It's a matter, quite honestly, of uh, the church having a heart and a harmony uh, with one another. Number three, the deacons are the decision-making body of the church. False. The role was given in Acts chapter 6, and it was to stop murmuring, to serve tables, and to minister to widows. Now what's interesting is, in most Baptist churches, deacons decide what their job is. In the Bible, the apostles told the deacons what their job was. The deacons never got to decide what their job was. Peter and James and John and the disciples said, here's what you're going to do, here's how helpers can help. And it seems to me that if we're going to be a church that believes in inerrancy in every area, even if it's comfortable for us or not, We ought to do what the Bible says. Saves a whole lot of headaches and heartaches. So, number four. In the New Testament, elders were paid staff. Amen, true. Who said that? (laughs) All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 14. Let me just ask you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 14. i have to get thumb index Bible if you're going to keep up tonight. First Corinthians nine. Now Paul talked often about the fact that he did not take any money from the churches as a traveling apostle and, and missionary. But he says in verse fourteen, "So also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel." That it is right for the church to make sure that those who are ministering the gospel don't have to worry about other things that they spend their lives and their time ministering the gospel, and so they were paid staff. Number five, the word deacon means leader. False. The word literally means through the dust. It is a servant. We're gonna look at that next time because Paul in these first eight verses talks about elders. In the next verses, he talks about the role of deacons and how you establish biblically authentic leadership there. Multiple choice. The way leadership should be selected in a church is by A, popular opinion, B, one, financial standing. C, someone who knows how to work the system. D, according to biblical qualifications. E, majority vote. F, longevity in the church. D. How many of you have ever been in a situation where it was not D? (laughs) There are a lot of those. But if we're going to be a biblically authentic church, then we have to do it according to biblical qualifications. The ultimate authority in Sherwood is held by A, the pastors and elders. B, the SBZ Executive Committee in Nashville. C, the Women's Ministry. D, the Church Secretaries. E, the Finance Committee. F, the Security Team. You're not leaving. (laughs) You know, Security Team is at the doors with guns. Uh, G, none of the above. G, none of the above. Ultimate authority in the church rests in God. And God's final authority is the Word of God. We find our source for what we do and how we live in the Word of God. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. The biblical role of elder. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, by the way, there are people who aspire who don't need to. (laughs) And that's why Paul gives the qualifications because he wants to make sure that the right kind of people aspire to ministry and the wrong kind of people don't. And if a church will look at the biblical qualifications, then it will do the right things when it calls a pastor, when it calls staff. So he says in verse 2, "...an overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money." He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. First thing you see in your notes there is this. As the leadership of the church goes, so goes the church. The church never rises above the level of her leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. That's true in a business. It's true in your home. It's true in a family. It's true in the church. And God holds the leadership responsible for what happens in the church, just as he holds leadership in the home, the father responsible for what happens in the home. While the church is an organism, it has to be organized. Now, there's never been a backbone that won a beauty contest, but nobody's ever won a beauty contest that didn't have one. You understand? Does that help you get a picture? There has to be a structure, there has to be an organization. God did not design chaos and disorder. Out of chaos, He created things that had order and reason. God designed the home to have a certain order. God designed society to have a certain order. God designed the church to have a certain order. And it's God's design, and when we work in that design, when the Father, would you agree, that when the Father is the spiritual head of the home, doing what he's supposed to be doing, that family functions better? Would you agree with that? Would you agree that when the society in general functions according to the laws of society and according to the code of the Ten Commandments that society functions better. Yes. So in the same light, when a church functions according to the biblical pattern, the church functions better. Now, a church needs strong leadership, not as an end to itself, but as a means to an end. Let me give you a biblical overview, and you've got the notes there in front of you. I'll add a couple of things to this, but I wanted to just go through this quickly, and you can study this for yourself if you'd like. First of all, God-given leadership is necessary to fulfill the demands placed on the church in 1 Timothy chapters 1 and 2. In verses 1 through 7, Paul uses the term elders in plural, that there is an accountability of multiple elders, and so it's not a singular, dictatorial kind of a thing but there's an accountability in multiple elders. In uh, the Old Testament, the elders settled the matters in a community. I mean, what they said was final. When Moses set out the elders to make decisions in the rulings of what happened in the community, those decisions were final. It's the way the Old Testament God structured it. In the New Testament, the elder can refer to men who are older. Sometimes the scripture refers to a man because of his age, or it can refer to an office. The word came to indicate leadership. The book of Acts quickly picks up the term elders and applies it to the local church. In fact, Acts chapter 15, James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and they had the dispute about what to do with the Gentiles and Gentiles being converted and about circumcision. And finally, James, after hearing all the things from, from Paul and from Barnabas and hearing from Cephas and the things that had happened, James said, listen to me, it is my judgment that we do this. It was yielded to James as a pastor of the church at Jerusalem, even with Paul and Barnabas there, even with Peter there, it was yielded to him to have the right to speak on the issue of what to do about the Gentiles. Now, aren't you glad James had the wisdom and the foresight to say we ought to include Gentiles in the gospel? Because that's how you got in. The church did not become an exclusively Jewish faith, but it spread out to the Gentiles. And James, in listening to all the arguments, about keeping with the Jewish functions and keeping with the Jewish code said, no, this is the way that the church needs to be structured. In the book of Numbers, it's an interesting study if you've ever studied the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is primarily a book about insubordination and rebellion. The people didn't like, you know, they asked God to send them somebody to lead them and then God sent them somebody to lead them and then they didn't like the one he sent. You know, this is Moses. We don't, we don't like Moses. We don't want Moses to lead us. You, in fact, you could write over the book of Numbers These words, we know better than Moses. That's what Numbers is about. We know better than Moses. Now God may have picked Moses and God may have used Moses and Moses may have gotten us out of Egypt, but now we know better. only one problem with that. God didn't tell them they knew better. They decided they knew better. And they got in trouble and you read in in Numbers all the rebellion and Korah's rebellion and everything that happened, Why? because the people of Israel didn't want to serve under anybody. Now, isn't that just true with the nature of man? I mean, we don't, want to be, we don't want a boss. We don't want the government to tell us what to do. We don't want our boss to tell us what to do. We don't want guidelines. We don't want to have to document things. We don't, we don't want to have to do anything because we kind of like free will in our lives. All of us like to do that. And yet, in this kind of context, God sent elders in the Old Testament, he sent elders in the New Testament. Now let me just give you some quick references that are not there. I read this afternoon just to remind myself because I needed to I needed to remember and make sure I was right on this. So I read from Romans chapter 13 all the way through Paul's epistles, all the way through 1 Peter, through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and through most of Hebrews. Just because I wanted to remember what it said and I sat down and marked out every time that it says be subject to those who are in authority. And it is an incredible amount of times that it says be subject to those who are in authority. Now, many times it's talking about the government, and kings and men who are in, in leadership positions, but the principle is always true. When I was on a staff, I had to be subject to those who were in authority. I had to be subject to my pastor. That meant that my job description said, that, you know, other duties as assigned by the pastor. That meant I had to do that if I wanted to be on that staff because I was subject to authority, to what the person over me deemed best for me to do. Now, he gave me my input you said, well, I had one or two that didn't give me any input, but uh, most of them did. Let me just give you some references. Romans 13, 1 through 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, Titus 3, 1 and 2, Hebrews 13, 17. By the way, Hebrews 13:17 is a great verse because it says, if you don't obey your leaders, it's unprofitable for you. Not that it's unprofitable for the leaders but it becomes unprofitable for you. You see, I believe that if you rebel against government authority, if you rebel against police authority, if you rebel against school authority, if you rebel against authority, it becomes not unprofitable for the people you're rebelling against. It becomes unprofitable for you. I got sent to the principal's office enough to understand that. (laughs) You know, it was unprofitable for me to smart off to a teacher because she would send me to the authority of the school and he would apply the board of education to me at which time my father would apply it a second time when I got home. Paul had a pastor's heart. In 2 Corinthians, you read about his pastor's heart. Paul confronted the churches when they resisted his leadership, but Paul always did it with a pastor's heart, with love and with passion for his people. Now, the early Christians, the elders were local leaders. I'm back in the notes again. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in various churches in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. The elders discuss how to respond to a crisis, that's Acts 15. Also, 1 Timothy chapter 6, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. They were paid officials of the church. We've already talked about that. Uh, Paul left Titus in Crete to appoint elders. The term elder seems to be a title given to those who exercise the ministry of pastor or bishop, and the term elder and overseer and bishop and pastor are used interchangeably. Now, here's the key. Elder is the Jewish term. Bishop is the Greek term. Now, the word bishop is an interesting word. The word bishop means a supervisor of a city, one who supervises and manages a city. It's a term for a city manager, one who supervises a city. And so the elders uh, were Jewish. That's the way the Jewish used the term. The bishops was the term used by the Greek. Peter used the term to describe spiritual leaders in the local church in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he said, shepherd the flock that God's given you. One of the most difficult jobs in the world is that of being a shepherd. If you've ever been around sheep, you know that that's a difficult job. And Paul says, and Peter says, Peter uses the imagery that pastoring is like shepherding, making sure the flock is fed, making sure the flock is protected from wolves, making sure the flock stays in line, making sure the flock goes in the direction that is best for the sheep. Then in Revelation The elders are around the throne leading in worship and adoration, Revelation 4 and 5 and 7 and 11 and 19. Now, the historical overview of leadership. Number one, elders are set aside to lead the church and care for it by teaching and applying God's Word. They are the teaching and worship leaders. The office of elder, although it became obvious in the New Testament, it solidified and came to the forefront in the Protestant Reformation. Listen to these words by John Calvin. In giving the name of bishops, presbyters, elders, and pastors indiscriminately to those who govern churches, I have done it on the authority of the Scripture which uses the words as synonymous. Institutes of Christian Religion, Book 4 and Chapter 3 if you just want some really, really deep reading sometime. Baptists have always seen elders to be the pastors. There can be more than one elder if there are more than one pastors of the church. They are charged with oversight and protection of the unity of the church. So personal convictions. Number one, God intends for his church to be led by elders and bishops and pastors and overseers. Every church that I know that is growing in America today, you can go do your own study if you want to, is a pastor-led church. Every church that is growing and ministering and aggressive, the great churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, the great churches that are doing great things for God are churches that are pastor-led doesn't mean they're pastor-dictated. It means that somebody's got to get out on the point and lead the charge. Somebody has to take the first shot. Somebody has to climb the hill the first time. And so that I believe that God has ordained it for pastors to lead. Now, one of the reasons I fought being a pastor for 15 years is because I didn't care about being in charge. To be quite honest with you, I like sitting in my office saying, I don't know, you can go ask him, he's in charge. And then I started sitting in the chair and I thought, who can I point to? It's me. I have to do it. I have to make those decisions. And it's not a joyous thing to do, and yet that, that's the conviction that I have about the church. Number two, the ascended Christ, through the Holy Spirit in his word, gave gifts to the church, including pastors and teachers, Ephesians chapter 4. Number three, the job description of pastors is not laid out specifically. I mean, I've heard W.A. Crystal say, every pastor ought to study in the morning and not come out until noon. Well, that's Crystal's way of studying it. Some people study late at night. Uh, there's not a specific day-to-day activity as much as this dealing with the qualifications of the church. Number four, while we do not have an elder system in the Baptist church, the ministerial staff fulfills the biblical role of elders. I want to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, because I want to tell you why it is important (coughs) for a pastor to be able to call his own staff. Why it's important for a pastor to be able to call his own staff. There's a church in Tennessee right now that's uh, trying to find a pastor. In the meantime, they are filling six empty staff positions. They've just filled two of them. Here's what their chairman of the deacon, said. Well, you know, pastors don't care much about recreation and youth work, so he won't really care who we've got here. If he's got a brain the size of a bug, he will, because he's directly responsible for what happens to those ministries under God. He better care what happens in recreation and youth ministry. He better care about what happens in every area of the ministry of the church. I don't know that I trust a staff member who would come during an interim, and I don't know that I trust a pastor who would go to a church that would go to a place where people call staff members without a pastor. Now, here's why. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Now, let me tell you why I think that's so important. I think it's important in calling a staff because I think a staff has to be of one heart and one mind. I would not give you two cents for anybody in the ministry that would stay in a church and not support the direction of that pastor. I think he needs to leave because I think if a man does not have the same heart and the same vision and the same passion of his pastor, then God's got another field for him to serve in. I think that's very clear in Scripture. Paul and Barnabas had a parting of the ways. Barnabas went one way and Paul went another. They disagreed about how they were going to do ministry, and they parted. John Mark parted from Paul because he couldn't take the pressures and the work. But eventually, John Mark earned the right to come back and be a part of Paul's staff. Paul, how'd you like to have been on Paul's staff? I mean, you just think about it. How'd you like to have worked with the Apostle Paul? Okay, guys, we're going to Ephesus today. We predict a stoning. (laughs) You mean we're not going to the all-you-can-eat buffet? No, it's going to be a stoning today. It looks like we're going to get beaten up and thrown in jail. But hey, just think about it. In that Philippian jail, they've got a great piano and we can sing some praise choruses. (laughs) I don't know if I'd want to be on Paul's staff. Paul had to be a tough bird to work for, I'm telling you. Now, I I remember I've got a friend of mine who served on staff at First Baptist Houston with John Bassanio. When John Bassanio went to First Baptist Church, Houston, the church was running 375 in Sunday school, downtown, dying, in debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars, behind on their budget, couldn't pay their bills, couldn't do anything. In less than 10 years, he relocated the church, and the church was having a Sunday school campaign, and their goal was 5,500 in less than 10 years, from 375 and my staff member friend overheard a deacon who was also the Sunday school director saying this in the hallway. Well, we had more than 375 when he came here. He just doesn't know what he's talking about. He said, you know, he he said, he ain't nearly as good as he thinks he is. You know what that reminded me of? It reminded me, it doesn't matter what you do, some folks ain't ever going to be happy. You're only as good as last week's sermon. People tend to forget. I mean, here's a guy who's taken a church from 375 to 5,000 and somebody standing in a hallway thinks they know more about building a church who had been there 30 years before Bassanio ever got there and had never seemed to contribute anything toward growth and yet criticized Bassanio for growing a church. By the way, the last reason why I think churches are to be pastor-led is because when Jesus sent the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he sent it to the messengers of the angels of the church. Those were the pastors, the leaders of the church. And he said to them, this is the letter to you, you tell the church. You direct the church of what I have against the church or what's going on in the church. Now, the biblical qualifications for elders. Notice that Paul says that these must be. Let me me back up for a second. I'll give you a great statement I heard Warren Wearsby make two weeks ago or whenever it was. Here's how you know the difference between a true leader and a false leader. Now, write it down somewhere. Put it in the front of your Bible. You're going to need this one day. You know, get lipstick, mascara, whatever you've got to get to write it down, but you're going to need this one day. A true leader uses his authority to build the church. A true leader uses his authority to build the church. A false leader uses the church to build his authority. You see how significant that is? A true leader uses his authority to build the church. to try to see that the church grows and develops and builds. Warren Wiersbe made that. I'm not the one that came up with that, so Warren Wiersbe made that statement. A true leader uses his authority to build the church. A false leader uses the church to build his authority, to increase his position. Now, Paul says these things must be a part of their lives. Now, I'm just going to divert here for about 30 seconds and tell you what happens to many churches. Many churches get the wrong pastor because they go about it the wrong way. They look for Saul instead of David. They look on the outside instead of on the heart. God said, I'm not interested in the appearance of man, but I look on the heart. The reason uh, people ask me how in the world I went to First Baptist Church, Ada, is my first church to pastor running 750 in Sunday school and I didn't climb up the ladder in a church with 50 or 85 or 100 and then 200 and then, you know, how did you go from here to there? And I said, I'll tell you very simply, it was the pulpit committee. There were five men on that pulpit committee. They had 72 resumes. They had been looking for eight months. They had been out visiting. They had traveled to four or five states. They had heard all these preachers. They had looked at everything and they came home and they heard a professor from OBU preach a sermon on looking for God's man. And it was a story of David when God set Saul aside and he said, go look for David. And there's nothing impressive about David if you read the story of the selection of David and the anointing of David because when he got down to David, everybody kind of looked around and said, David? And the title of the sermon was, Do You Want Saul or David for Your Next Pastor? And they went back and met that afternoon. It's only Sunday in months that that pulpit committee had all been in church. And they went back and met that afternoon. They took every resume and they threw it in the garbage can. They spent three hours in prayer and said, God, you've got to send us to your man. And in three weeks, I was there in View of a Call. I had no clue they were looking. I had no clue who they were. I, I could, it's a miracle and a story in itself how all that evolved. 1988, the pulpit committee from Sherwood Baptist Church contacted me. The chairman of the pulpit committee contacted me and I said, no, I'm not interested. I understood moving. In July, I came down here and talked to the committee. The committee had been traveling all over the place and I said, no, you know, nice people. You know, we'll probably never go there. On the third time that the pulpit committee here contacted me, it was right for them and it was right for me. But you see, the, you have to credit folks, and some of you say you want to blame, but... Uh, <clears throat> You have to credit the pulpit committee of this church for this. They didn't rush out and get a pastor when it would have been easy to do so. Because I'm going to tell you, there are plenty of people who would like to pastor Sherwood. If I were to leave here tomorrow, I guarantee you by three weeks from now, you will have 125 resumes and many letters from men saying, I felt led of God to tell you I'm available. (laughs) But you see, they waited. They waited. And they prayed and they waited and they thought and they sought. And I believe that I am here as a direct result of some people who sought God on a pulpit committee and on God's timing in me being here. And so these must be, and here are the characteristics that you look for. This is what, if you've got a friend in a church that's looking for a pastor, you need to send them these characteristics. You ought to send them this message. But you need to send them these characteristics because this is what you look for in looking for a pastor or a staff member or anybody that's going to lead in a church. Number one, above reproach. He's supposed to be blameless. That word means nothing to take hold on for accusation. Nothing to take hold of. There should be nothing in his life, these characteristics are to dominate his life. He's not to be sinless, but he is to be blameless. Number two, His fidelity in marriage, the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, his fidelity in marriage. Now, obviously, Paul is ruling out polygamy and bigamy and homosexuality. He's talking about being faithful to the wife. There are a lot of interpretations of this, but I would say simply this. I agree with Warren Wiersbe when he says it means that a pastor must not be divorced and remarried. Now, why do I believe that's an accurate interpretation? It is not to penalize divorcees, but it is to set the standard of the office of pastor higher than the world sets anything else. You see, a man can have blown it in his married life and be the president of the United States, but he can't be the pastor of a church with 50 members because God says the standard is too high for the average person. A person has to have proven himself, why? Because a church is more like a home than it is like a business. It's a family. And so there has to be fidelity in marriage. Now, I don't think this excludes singles from going into the ministry. If it did, Jesus could have never been in the ministry. Probably Paul couldn't have been. Cephas, we know, was married. Peter was married. His self-mastery, number three, temperate, prudent, self-controlled, literally, clear-headed. The word means clear-headed or not self-indulgent. When he talks about temperate and prudent, he's talking about a man who has the ability to say no. NIV, I think, translates this, keep your head in all situations. It's a person who is sober and sensible in judgment. The idea behind this is if you can't rule over others, and you, you can't control yourself. You can't rule over others unless you can control yourself. It is a supervisory role of yourself. Number four, his hospitality. He used to be hospitable, literally a lover of strangers. Now, in the early church days, in the New Testament, uh, there weren't hotels, and those that were hotels were really kind of houses of ill repute. Uh, there were some shady kind of people that stayed there. Uh, you know, the rent-by-the-hour kind of places. You know, not not where you want to go. And so, just like... In the early days of this century, many times when a pastor or an evangelist or one of the apostles would go to a church, they would stay in the home of the elder. And so Paul says the person has to be hospitable. In other words, how a person treats the traveling evangelist and traveling preacher is a key to whether he's qualified or not to be a pastor. I tell you, folks, There are a lot of guys out there, and and I've watched this. You know, I go overboard. I know I go overboard. I intentionally go overboard. When we have Ron Dunn here, when we had Lehman Strauss here, when we have John Phillips here, I'll go overboard to be hospitable. I'll do everything within my power. I'll go the second mile because I know, number one, that's the right thing to do. Number two, it's a qualification for a pastor. I've watched churches that, I mean, there's they'll just pick the guy up and say, well, you know, there's a bus that runs by the airport. I'm sure you can get it and get to the motel. You cannot believe. John Phillips told me when he ate in our home, he said, you know, he said, maybe once a year I'm ever invited into the pastor's home. Layman Strauss said he was rarely invited into a pastor's home. Why? Because guys have forgotten that they're supposed to be hospitable i supposed to have good graces, good manners. How you treat strangers, how you treat the preacher, it's an important qualification. His teaching ability. Now, in the middle of teaching about moral qualifications, Paul turns to professional qualifications and he uses this phrase, able to teach. Now, he does not mean there that the teacher has to have the gift of teaching, but he is means that he needs to be familiar with the Word and able to explain it. Again, I want to quote Warren Wiersbe. The pastor who is lazy in his study is a disgrace in the pulpit. No excuse for a preacher who doesn't study. Now, let me just say that one more time. There is no excuse for a preacher who doesn't study. If you're going to take your time on your day off to show up on Sunday to worship God, I better have taken my time to put myself in a study and get a word from God and have something to say to you when you show up. Otherwise, you don't need me. If I'm just going to read you what comes out of one commentary, if I'm not going to study, if I'm going to kind of hit and miss and study for 30 minutes and scratch out an outline on an envelope just before the worship service starts, you don't need a pastor like that. Nobody needs a, a pastor like that. He's needs to be able to teach, able to communicate the truth of God's word. Now, next one. His drinking habits. Well, I'm glad I was going to get to that one. His drinking habits. The Greek means one who sits long at his wine. (laughs) Well, based on Romans 14, I believe that because of the society in which we live in, although Paul does not say here abstinence. He says one who sits long at his wine or one who is a slave to drink. But I believe because of the society we live in, this is where we have to abstain from any use of alcohol because of what society would picture us as being if we don't. Now, it's just that simple. I think there needs to be the total abstinence one reason is because if you never take a drink, you never become an alcoholic. You may have never met an alcoholic who'd never taken a drink. You may have that tendency in your family, and you may have that tendency genetically, but if you never take a drink, you never succumb to it. But here's if, if you can write this down, because I think this applies to food, I think it applies to drink, or drugs, or anything. By the way, I hear a lot of, you know, preachers sometimes, we, we like to pick our, and choose our subjects. I hear some boys out there that look like they're about two days from their due date. (laughs) You know, they hadn't seen their shoes in 20 years. And they're talking about, We're not supposed to be drinking. We're not supposed to be gluttons either. Here's what I think this means. The principle behind this is nothing should control the man of God but the Spirit of God. He should not be addicted to eating he should not be addicted to drinking. He should not be addicted to television, to sports. If there's anything he can't give up, he's not qualified. Not addicted to anything. Not controlled by anything else. And it is important that you and I understand that for the man of God to be who he's supposed to be, he has to be controlled by the Spirit. Number seven, his temper and temperament. Not violent but gentle, not pugnacious, not quarrelsome, or not given to blows. He's not somebody looking for a fight. I love what Vance Havner said. He said, "You know, a bulldog can whip a skunk, but it's just not worth it." <laughs> All right, you know, I tell you, there are times when you know you can win, but it's not worth it. You just let it go. Now you'll think about that when a bulldog can whip a skunk. Not worth it. Why would it not be worth it? Gentle. That word means yielding or forbearing or considerate. By the way, that word gentle in its context means gentle even when correcting those who oppose you. Number eight. Number eight. Number eight. Number eight. <laughs> Number eight, he should be able to use his tongue when he talks. His attitude toward money. His attitude toward money. The focus here is not on money, but the elder's attitude toward it. He's to be honest with money. No shady deals, no get-rich schemes. Um, I personally think that a guy in the ministry doesn't need to be involved in multi-level marketing schemes because I think that sometimes they can begin to use his office to try to make money. And I think that's wrong. That's me personally. You may not feel that way. That's me personally. I just think anything that you do that helps pad your pocket means that you can get into the point of loving money. And here's what else that I believe about this passage. I believe that no man should ever be in the ministry who doesn't give at least a tithe of his income. No man should serve on a church staff who doesn't give a tithe of their income. I've got a friend of mine dealing with a situation in a church right now. He's got over half the people that work in that church that do not tithe. And he's going around to them individually, and this is what he's telling them. Look, I'm through asking senior adults to give tithes on their Social Security, and you make a good living, and you're not tithing. I'm not going to ask them to do it anymore. And one of them said, well, this is my church and I love it. This church is like my family. I love this church. I love this church. And my friend said, well, i tell you what, if this is your church and this is your family and you love it, I'd hate to see what you do to your enemies. I'm going to tell you something, folks. If you love something, you invest in it. I love this church and I invest in it. I don't determine what happens to my tithe. It goes wherever it goes in this budget. It goes in all kinds of things. Some things I would do differently. But I think a man, if he's not a lover of money, he says, this, this income belongs to God. My position belongs to God. Number nine, his domestic discipline. He's to be a spiritual leader in the home. Again, the church is more like a home than a business. A man can't control his own family. He shouldn't enlarge his sphere of ministry. Now, I think this is important. God holds us responsible to our kids. But not for all their choices. Some of you have had guilt trips about what's happened with your kids as they've gotten older. I think God holds us responsible for what happens to our kids, but I don't think God holds us responsible for their choices they make as they get older. Once a child has got a mind of their own and they make their choices, then they are responsible for their actions. You're responsible to do all you can to guide them and correct them and train them and teach them, but they are responsible for their actions. And I have seen some good men whose children have, at the age of 18 and 19 and 20 years old, decided to go off the deep end and somebody decided they were disqualified for ministry because they decided to do that. I don't think so. I think they raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and then at some point if a young man or a young woman decides that they're going to walk away from God, they are like the prodigal. The father stands on the porch and he waits for them to come to their senses. And you set an example and you set a standard. I know a man right now who is a pastor of a church, and he's had to kick his son out of his home. That's very difficult because, you see, as a pastor or as a staff member, everybody looks at your kids. You see, the problem is my kids and staff members' kids, you know what they hear? You can't do that because you're the preacher's kid. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Yours can't do it because they're supposed to be Christian kids. You see, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And I'll be glad to hold my kids up to the same standard that anybody else in this church is willing to hold their kids up to. But there's not two sets of rules of child-rearing. And there's not two sets of rules of discipline. And there's not two sets of rules of right and wrong. And if I'm expected to be the spiritual leader of my home, every man in this church is expected to be the spiritual leader of his home. Every man. And so there must be a domestic discipline, and that means that the pastor or the staff member must never leave the role of raising children to his wife so he can run off and do church stuff. You don't sacrifice your children on the altar of ministry. I think one of the dangerous things of the generation before me in ministry was they went off to the church and they went and visited everybody in the hospital and they did everything and they were always available and always out and they had time for everybody's kids but their own and everybody's needs but their own. And they said, well, God knows I'm serving him so God will just have to take care of my kids. That's wrong. Because being a leader and a pastor in a church does not mean that you don't have to be the leader in your home and you delegate it out to somebody else. Number 10, his spiritual maturity. Now, this is not about uh, chronology as much as his spiritual maturity. In other words, he's not a greenhorn. He's not a novice. He's not a new convert. And Paul makes the danger very clear here. If he's not mature, then ego and pride will get in his way. So then in number number 11, he says his outside reputation in verse 7. That means, what do non-Christians think about him? What does the watching world think of this person? You see, because the reputation in the world influences the ability of a church to minister. Now, when I was growing up, I could remember some preachers who came in my dad's drugstore and they'd walk in and say, uh, Brother Cat, uh, you you go down there in that Calvary Baptist church, don't you? Yep. Y'all give ministerial discounts here? Please. Oh, please. I'm going to tell you something, folks. That's a misuse of the office. To go in a man's clothing store or go in his car lot or to go into his drugstore or his grocery store and say, because I'm a preacher, you ought to give me a discount. The way most preachers pay their bills, they ought to charge them more. You see, folks, it matters how lost people view the man in ministry. He has to be known in the community as a person who is above reproach. And so... Paul gives us these qualifications now. Why? We've already mentioned this earlier. These are given to encourage the right people to enter into leadership and ministry, and they are given to discourage the wrong people from pursuing ministry and leadership. These standards are so strict and exacting because the implications are so extensive because the implications are so extensive. They are demanding because the ministry is so determinative. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do.